Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. China and Nauru have jointly announced their resumption of official diplomatic relations. Nauru severed its diplomatic ties with Taiwan last week after the separatist Democratic Progressive Party won a third term in the island. What's behind the move by Nauru? What does the switch of diplomatic recognition mean to the defense of the One China Principle? How can China help Nauru and other countries in the South Pacific region with infrastructure construction and climate change? Join us for our discussion from Beijing. I'm Xu Qinduo. Joining us for today's show are Dick Bay Ren, Senior Special Advisor to the Institute of International Relations of Cambodia, Joanna Lei, former Taiwan legislator, and Huang Jing, Director of Institute of the U.S. and Pacific Studies from Shanghai International Studies University. Welcome to Dialogue. Joanna, I will start with you. you know, just a week after it broke ties with Taiwan, Nauru officially announced the resumption of a formal diplomatic relationship with the Chinese mainland. So what do you make of Nauru's choice? And uh, you know, what, what's the response from the public in Taiwan? Well, both the event itself and the timing are significant. DPP has tried to downplay the importance of the event and also have tried to accuse an ally of betraying Taiwan for financial gains. However, I think the most important part is this time they did not only sever the diplomatic tie but cited two things as the reason. One of the most important part was the resolution 2758 and the other is adhering to the one China policy uh, principle. The One China Principle has long been a standard narrative in any of such events, but to cite Resolution 2758 has a direct uh, rebuttal to what the United States is now claiming. U.S. response by Rosenberg immediately after the severance is that they are very unhappy about the severance, the citing of the 2758, saying that Taiwan was not a part of the 2758. And the United States have been trying to use the fact that 1972, during that period of time, the change of UN seat as a way of saying Taiwan was never part of that discussion and setting the table for potential application to UN or even just in international arena, a rhetoric of saying Taiwan is not part of China. But this time, the reason citing Resolution 2758 has actually evoked an immediate response by AIT's chairperson, Rosenberg. I think that's probably the most important part. Among all these other countries, severing diplomatic ally relationship with Taiwan, this one has a very unusual response from the United States. Oh, right. Huang Jim, tell us more about this UN resolution, you know, 2758, about the One China Principle. And what do you make of the, you know, annual response from the U.S.? I think the United States are trying to distort this kind of resolution from the U.N. because it says very clearly, no doubt that China, People's Republic of China, is the sole representative of all China. So therefore, any other sovereign state want to have a diplomatic relationship with China. It has to do with the People's Republic of China, not, you know, obviously on Taiwan. So I think Nauru made 
a kind of choice in accordance with this resolution. The point here is that right now, it is not really against Taiwan for actions like this by other sovereign states to resume diplomatic relationship with, with China, but it is rather against the United States. The United States is very much concerned with this phenomenon, with this tendency, that less and less sovereign states have diplomatic relationship with Ireland, which of course uh, put a great challenge to the United States to maintain this unofficial but very substantive relationship with Ireland uh, if, you know, no one has a normal relationship with it. That, that's a kind of challenge to the United States rather than Ireland itself. Mm -hmm. Huang Jing, are you saying that uh, the switch of recognition is not serving as a message, for example, you know, to the victory of the Democratic Progressive Party, which is seen as a separatist party in the island, in Taiwan? So do you think this is also a response probably to their victory? You know, this is for the first, uh, th third time for them uh, to win the election here. I don't want to talk in that kind of situation. I don't mm -hmm. think so, frankly speaking. It's more have to do with uh, internal politics, domestic, uh, domestic politics of Nauru, uh, because it goes with the election on Nauru, not with uh, Taiwan. But the timing is such that it makes it look like a kind of action against the newly elected Lai Chinde and his party. Mm -hmm. The timing here is here. And also, I think it's, it's counterproductive for DPP or United States in, in this regard to cry out against this action because it actually made the situation even more significant for the isolation or increasing isolation of, of Taiwan, especially under the leadership of DPP. Well, Digby, of course, it's interesting if you notice, uh, you know, for example, the U.S., you know, they recognize this one China principle and Australia, where you are from, also recognize this one China principle. They have a strong relationship with China, in particular Australia, but somehow they are not happy to see other countries, especially the South Pacific or Caribbean, you know, island nations to establish official diplomatic ties with the mainland. What is the thinking? The thinking is obviously to maintain the kind of what they call the Pacific family, which really is just a sort of a hangover from, you know, colonialism, because uh, all those islands have been, you know, fallen victim to colonialism. And they are all on the same trend, which is they need to have economic development. And because they're islands, they have fisheries and they have the possibility of some other resources in the water, but they have very little in terms of uh, land and agriculture except for the bigger islands. And so they need ports and airports and schools and hospitals and so forth, and China offers them these things, and the Americans and the Australians have had a hundred years to do this and they haven't done it. So I think that's fairly clear. And then Fukushima doesn't help, does it? I mean, uh, you know, it was just pushed down their throats. They had to accept it, even though they re rejected the whole notion of filling the ocean with, you know, radioactive material. So all of these things just all adding up, right? And of course, you know, the Americans and the Australians not, you know, making lots of promises, but really, I mean, with their economies in recession, they're not really able to provide what is essential. And that is access for these people to provide processing and products and then ac access large markets and operate together in large in a, in a group you know a pacific island group and they have not been able to do that in china and its belt and road and it's in its economic reform programs and development programs these suit the islanders perfectly very very well um, so i think we're going to see more and more of this really <laughs> there's only 13 to go 12 to go <laughs> yes so they they have their own obviously rationale in making 
such a decision. Uh, so, Joanna, <laughs> you know, if it's not a... Go I was going to say, since the DPP's been, you know, elected three times, but... It just keeps losing support internationally in real terms. And uh, I don't think that's going to keep continuing. And they've lost uh, control of the legislative in Taiwan. And that's really, really important. And uh, all the Western media have skipped that because that means the president's basically lame duck. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Joanna, you know, on one hand, of course, it's about following the UN resolution on the one China principle. I mean, as a member of the international community, of course, they are expected to follow such a principle, such a UN resolution. On the other, I mean, if not serving as a, a message to the DPP, uh, the separatist DPP the political force there, but at least probably a reminder of them that uh, unless they come back to the 1992 consensus, basically both sides across the Taiwan streets recognize there's only one China. Otherwise, there will be probably the pressure will continue to mount uh, politically uh, you know, against the DPP. Is that the case? Well, certainly not only politically, but also economically. We fully expect that there will be perhaps more economic measures being leveraged onto Taiwan because, as you said, during the time that both parties recognize or both sides recognize the 92 consensus, we've had a fairly good period of time, a run of over, maybe if you count it from 2005, Lian Zhan's visit to the end of Ma Yingzhou's uh, eight-year reign, we had a period of close to 12 years, during which under the 92 consensus, we have signed agreements, made economic arrangements, and also allow free travels between the two sides of Taiwan Strait with people freely communicating and freely traveling. So we've had 12 years of great time under that political understanding. And now if there is no such foundation, Taiwan would expect a lot of setbacks. And one of the setbacks have already been levered, which is the trade uh, investigation and the ensuing restriction of ECFAS 12 items. And they also have announced that there will be more measures to come, taking away the tariff advantage Taiwan enjoyed during the ECFA. Well, come back to this, uh, you know, South Pacific Island countries, uh, Huang Jing, you know, this uh, uh, novel decision or the switch of uh, recognition uh, followed the practice of uh, Solomon Islands and Kiribati recent, in recent years. Of course, you know, for the Chinese side, for this mainland side, of course, they welcome the, such kind of uh, switch uh, in terms of diplomatic recognition. But then uh, if you look at globally, I mean, if this is the trend, uh, but this is the trend also based on their own national interest, right? You know, given this Belt and Road Initiative, given China becoming the second largest economy, I mean, the largest retail market, for example, in the development of technologies, that's the right decision. And also rational, serving their own national interests. So we are going to expect more probably such moves, similar moves in the future? Uh, yes, as we know, as, uh, as the beginning of this century, we know that the gravity of economic development, diplomacy, security, uh, you name it, the global gravity of all those things has shifted to the Pacific, centered on China. And China is a driving force for this great trend. And this is irresistible and inevitable. So this kind of switch of recognition by Nauru actually just again shows this kind of great trend and uh, in which relocation of China with Taiwan is also part of this this great trend. Uh, Mr. Sun Yashen said many uh, long, many years ago that if you follow the trend, you prosper. If you go against it, you diminish. 
I think the DPP and the separatist forces on Taiwan is obviously trying everything possible to, to go against this trend. But the problem is that, sorry for them, the more they resist against it, eventually they're going to suffer more. What happened, what really, really makes all the mainland people uh, you know, really concerned or even heartbroken is that they hijacked the 23 million Taiwanese people, go with them against the very irrational and the crazy you know, kind of uh, fight or struggle against this big trend. You know, Nauru is a very small country, indeed, uh, it is, but it's a sovereign country. Again, this kind of recognition shows a big trend we just talked about. And uh, it is uh, really, I believe, really, uh, you know, uh, self-destructive to go against this trend. Well, Digby, a uh, neighboring country of Nauru, you know, Tuvalu, uh, to, you know, is said uh, uh, that uh, they are going to also probably to switch the recognition from Taiwan to the mainland, uh, uh, you know, in a couple of months, probably. It depends on their, their elections. Do you agree this is like a trend? At least it seems to be the trend, right? There's no doubt about that. The United States recognizes the one China policy and so does every other country in the world, except for 12 micro states. And let's, let's be really clear, these states are micro states and the Vatican doesn't, is not a state and it is not a member of the UN. So really, the diminishing return for Taiwan in, in this respect and for the United States, I mean. But look, at this point, the question of legality, whether, you know, whether it's, there's any kind of legal status for Taiwan other than what it is as a province of China, uh, is just completely gone. That fantasy is just diminished every time another micro state, you know, it's like little dots just disappearing off the, the map. What these people really want, of course, is connectivity through the Pacific. All the trade routes, uh, you know, all the digital connection and being able to exercise exploitation of their natural resources, which they've never been able to really do under colonialism. And so Belt and Road, as you said, offers that. And Tuvalu is the furthest island out close to ha uh, Hawaii, I think. So, you know, we're going to see a little bit more of this sort of... Uh, tossing and turning uh, in the Pacific Ocean uh, with islands, you know, really either having switched or considering switching and, you know, Australia and the Americans and New Zealanders to a lesser degree still trying to stimulate a kind of uh, situation where they can get basically military rights. You know, see, that's, there's a big difference here, isn't there? Because China's really talking about economic development and what the US and the Australians are talking about is military rights and policing and security and putting in global satellites that track every fishing vessel of every country in the world as long as it's got a Chinese flag on it. So, you know, that that sort of tension. And the islanders don't want any part of it and they don't want Fukushima's either. So I think what we're going to see is this trend is going to continue and, you know, there's a lot of Tuvalu is in is in play, Paraguay in South America and, and a few others. Um, those three or four little ones that are in the free trade uh, federation, sorry, the... Um, Association of Free States, microstates that's associated with Americans, well, there they have no choice at all. The Americans have just absolutely taken over their, their economic development, their, their, their foreign policy. There's no military policy. And in fact, they don't really have a government at all those three little places. So, you know, so much for democracy for them. Well, you, you mentioned about, uh, of course, their, their pursuit of uh, economic interests uh, and, you know, trade investment. I mean, you know, the fact is like China is the largest trading nation and China is very strong in terms of infrastructure construction and, uh, uh, you know, even climate change, climate
the resistance. China is a leading nation in terms of uh, renewable energies and uh, related technologies. Uh, tell us, Jigabe, uh, you know, in what way China can play a role, can help those countries like Noro, like Tuvalu, in developing, say, in building infrastructure projects or in increasing investment? Well, all of the things that you've mentioned, of course, um, uh, but, you know, the programs that China's running for economic development across the Pacific are not that dissimilar to the, the, the other programs they've been running very successfully across ASEAN and in Africa and in Central Asia and so forth. So basically, we're talking about just making sure the islands are kind of linked on the routes, you know, the, the lines of communication. And that's all they really have to be has to be done first. But then, of course, upgrading for their, their infrastructure, their really basic infrastructure, food security, water security, uh, you know, ocean storms and things like that, and then education. And so, you know, China runs very big programs for all of these things, governance programs, training, admin. I remember uh, a few years ago that, you know, we had classes at one of the universities in Nanchang, I think it was, where there was a host of uh, islanders doing their uh, MBAs. So, you know, there's really uh, a lot going on there for these islanders and, and you know, they want, to, they want it and they're desperate to have it and they're stuck in this great power, power rivalry and, and but slowly but surely they're breaking out and they're joining you know with the global majority with you know the same yes. feelings they don't want to be imposed upon and they don't want to be military bases they want to be successful small states right so joanna now that's a rational choice uh, in terms of their national interest to develop the infrastructure to develop their uh, you know investment in trade and of course to help them to fight climate change you know given the status of uh, the mainland i mean the strength technology they have for these island nations there well i think the point is very well taken because if people take the case of Nauru, it was once the richest country in the world has higher gdp per capita than the united states when they had the big export trade of phosphorus. At the time, it was termed as the Kuwait in the Pacific. And after a number of years, another 20 years later, you can see that due to mismanagement of their national wealth, during perhaps the mismanagement of the government, they are now in the lowest level of economic bracket. So all these countries looking at their own future can see the two alternative futures. One is still being exploited for its natural resources and perhaps being used as the military base. And the other one is a lot of the global South countries have already joined this big trend of linking between countries, connecting the dots, creating big economic platforms for everyone to enjoy with China as a large import market. I think that's a very important point. China is a very large market and willing to open up for international imports. So small countries in Africa have already enjoyed it and countries in the South Pacific certainly have the same opportunity. And even more importantly, Maldives and other countries may truly be at the blunt of global climate change. If there is a rise of sea level or perhaps unusual climate patterns, who is the one to rescue them? If you look at the history in the last 10 years, China was the first one to offer a rescuing hand. So for these countries, the choice may be very easy with the exceptions of those countries already have US military bases, such as Palau and Michelle. Yeah, U.S. basis, you know, speak of that, Huang Jim, uh, you know, often, as Digby mentioned, you know, when China uh, deals with uh, uh, less relationship with other countries, you know, it often stresses very much about uh, cooperation, win-win cooperation, 
uh, investment, uh, you know, trade, uh, you know, infrastructure, climate change. But uh, the concern, you know, it seems like from Australia, from the U.S., is often about uh, like uh, of security, whether there will be, you know, the speculation has been going on for years, whether there will be a Chinese military base, uh, military base in some, in maybe one of the island countries in South Pacific. And what is the true concern? Does that have anything to do with this geopolitical competition with China from Washington, for example? Uh, yes, I think from Washington point of view, of course, it drives impossible all over the world, not just in America, that to so-called campaign China in order to outcompete China. So, because it says that its computation with China as a zero-sum game, as a result, it, it it thinks that whenever China gains, it will be a potential loss or a loss of the United States and its allies. So that when you look at the situation as a as a zero-sum game, then that's a kind of result. But if history can teach us anything, is that if you play a zero-sum game, you only stay to it when you gain. When you when you cannot gain anything, you, you you just go away. In other words, United States has abandoned its allies or friends again and again once it says there's no interest in it. But People's Republic of China, in short history, only 70 years, and for China's rise, only about 40 years. But there's no such a thing that China has ever abandon uh, its friends uh, for, for its own sake. China always stick to the end of it because China says, indeed, uh, the game is not a zero-sum game, but a positive-sum game. Uh, that's why China put forward, push forward for this one belt, one road initiative. That's why China tried to uh, develop a kind of community with shared future because, like Xi Jinping said, the world is well, doing well, China is doing well. In that regard, I do believe that from China's point of view, to help countries that narrow in the climate change and so on, it also helps China itself because we're all living in the same village. Here I want to mention one thing that climate change is also very critical for Taiwan because after all, Taiwan is an island. And also Taiwan standing forefront of climate change against the challenge of climate change, not just for the island itself, but for the entire mainland. In this regard, I think it has every reason, we have every reason that, that the Taiwan and the Chinese to come together rather than, you know, like this, go against each other under the leadership of people, which is very, very short-sighted and unreasonable. Uh, Huang Jin, do you mean that uh, there's a misunderstanding or misinterpretation of the Chinese development, for example, the Chinese uh, engagement in this region somehow we, is a uh, is misunderstood as, you know, in zero-sum terms, like if China's presence is, increases and then the influence of the U.S. or Australia will be somehow dwindled, will be weakened? I think that there, of course, is some misunderstanding uh, because, you know, people look at things from different perspectives. But also I think there is uh, some not misunderstanding, but it's a kind of... Uh, deliberately, uh, you know, message or, or kind of even deceptive message that is a country that is getting stronger with the hegemon, will bully others. Uh, for, for countries narrow, of course, its history tells them, tells them that always been bullied by neighbors or by countries stronger than them. And for, for countries like United States and Australia, it's also in their heritage, like it or not that a stronger party uh, is a party that dominates. But that's not China's you know, behavior. And uh, too bad that China has need some time to prove itself that is China truly is going for a win-win cooperation rather than if China getting stronger, China will follow the suit 
of the imperialist, imperialist power to bully others. But, you know, this needs time. It also needs effort, mutual effort for China and for countries like Nauru to prove that there is another way, a way of cooperation, a way of a peaceful development together, uh, rather than like a stronger party is going to dominate over the weaker party. Well, speak of the relationship, uh, Dick B, you know, there's a report saying that um, there's an agreement signed between Australia and uh, Tuvalu in 2023. Basically, you know, people believe the agreement was signed under the motivation by fears of a switch. Uh, the agreement would require Tuvalu to gain Australia's permission uh, if they are going to enter any partnership arrangement or engagement with any other state or entity on security and defense related matters. So is there any possibility for a win-win or win-win-win for all the countries involved <laughs> in the region, Australia, the US, you know, Nauru and other countries and China to work together? It's almost absolutely sure that uh, it's a win-win if the islands get economic development because that's what they want. I mean, it, it's not a huge problem for Australia other than or for China, other than that these islands are where they are and they need economic development. They've been seeking it forever. Uh, they've tried to decolonize. They've done all of that. And so, yeah, look, as we talked about trends and so forth, and now try the idea that the Australians have got some kind of a legal lock on Nauru and they have to check whether or not, what, like, grandpa or big brother or something. <laughs> I don't think so. I think, <laughs> I mean, sorry, Tuvalu. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, the, the it, You know, it's a kind of a... A, a diplomatic word trick to try and make it look like they couldn't possibly do it. But of course, they'll do what's there in their best interest. And as we know, the trend for their best interest is to connect up to wider networks where they can export and develop their, their economies and education and health and so forth and have better connectivity all over. And that's really what they want and uh, <clears throat> strengthen their economies and instead of being dependent, because, you know, they've been dependent literally for 100 years, you know, and uh, thing about, you know, phosphates and so forth is, you know, it's, it was American companies that were sort of skipping across the islands, digging up fertilizer for American farms before chemical fertilizers were available. And that sort of, co you know, corresponded with the colonization of the Philippines by uh, by the Americans. And so, you know, they just kept doing it. And then they decided they needed to keep those. They were very useful during, uh, you know, after World War One. So as we can see, that mentality continues. And uh, all these little islands, uh, they're no longer, you know, they've all they've all been to university now. They've been and they've got economics degrees and governance degrees and they've seen how it all works. And they've got friends, for example, in the G77 and other uh, organizations, uh, RCEP, very, very close, you know, ASEAN for them, and China, of course, not to exclude other East Asian countries, but it's all there, and so they have to grab it, and I think they are grabbing it, and it's going to continue to happen, and the U.S. is in, in, in a weakening position overall, uh, no matter what. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's discussion. Many thanks to our guests. I'm Xu Qingdo. See you next time. Sideline Story brings you all things sports related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.